Web3 with me is a discussion style podcast about the ins and outs of Web 3.0, hosted by Zach French, known as Off Edge in the verse. From crypto to NFTs, DAOs to DeFi, we cover the abstract philosophical promises and the new business models enabled in this new decentralized world. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or watch the show on YouTube. Thanks and enjoy. My guest today is Dan Romero, CEO and co-founder of Farcaster, a decentralized social media protocol. Dan was an early employee in 2014 at Coinbase, where he led business development that laid the groundwork for Coinbase's fiat rails. He started Farcaster after becoming obsessed with the idea that RSS, the protocol upon which this show and all other podcasts are broadcasted, could be used to compete with Twitter. We go deep on how better thinking can result from creating a permissionless protocol that is optimizing feed algorithms for quality of conversation. Also, we discuss Dan's contrarian take on why filter bubbles are actually a good thing. One of the core beliefs for myself and this show is that if we facilitate open and honest discourse, it will lead to better decisions and therefore better outcomes for the entire world. After speaking with Dan, I can see how the success of Farcaster can directly contribute to this. LFG, baby. Let's start vibing. Zach French is a bar certified attorney and nothing expressed by Zach during Web3 with me shall be considered legal advice. All the opinions expressed by Zach and his guests are solely their own opinions. All content in Web3 with me is for informational purposes only. Zach and his podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during Web3 with me. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks for having me. Been really excited about this conversation as as you and I talked pre-recording a few weeks ago. Um, I think that your application and your protocol are one of the most mentioned things by my group of friends uh, in Web3 about where uh, I should be focusing more of my resources. So I get to peel back the layers with you today. So I'm excited about that. Excited to chat. Cool, man. Well, I typically start these interviews with uh, my audience getting to know you a little bit better, getting to know what makes Dan Dan. Uh, I call it your founding story. So feel free to start wherever you'd like. So I'm originally from the East Coast, um, spent, you know, first 18 years of my life there and even college and, and a little bit after college. And so roughly, I think it was like 25 or so, I moved out to Silicon Valley and started working in tech, like kind of always had been a dream of mine. And the first year I was in Silicon Valley, everyone had an opinion on Bitcoin. And I had originally dismissed it as a Ponzi scheme. Like the actual backstory is I, I went to college with Fred Urson, one of the two co-founders of Coinbase. And when I was first moving out to Silicon Valley, he, he they just raised their Series A. I think they had just hired their first employee. And they said, hey, do you want to kind of like be an early employee at Coinbase? And I categorically dismissed what they were working <laughs> on as, as, as a Ponzi scheme. I, it was like magic internet money. Like that's not that's not what I came to Silicon Valley for. I, I want to want to work at a SaaS company. And sure enough, I, I am in Silicon Valley. You meet smart people, engineers, and everyone kind of has this point of view on Bitcoin. And, and I'm completely ignorant to it. So finally get around to actually reading the, the Satoshi white paper, which if you've never read the white paper, I highly encourage it because it is, it's cogent, it's short, like you, you, you don't actually have to be that technical to understand it. And I think in reading the white paper and letting it kind of marinate a bit in my head, it, it, it started to shift where all I could start thinking about is, hey, this feels like a completely new paradigm, right? Like it's, it's a new type of, of primitive and, and Chris Dixon has this phrase where it's like a computer that can make commitments. And so I, I got really excited about this potential of like, what, what new things can people go build with this permissionless public blockchain, right? 
And so I ended up joining Coinbase in, in 2014. I originally started on the BD side of things, kind of trying to get merchants to accept Bitcoin as a payment method, awesome. um, but then quickly moved into uh, managing the, the fiat partnerships for Coinbase. And, and if you think of Coinbase as a business, take fiat currency, swap it into crypto and vice versa. So those, those relationships are, are critical for the business to work. And so first did it internationally and then started doing it in the US. And, and it's actually relatively timely given the, the kind of all the news in, in crypto right now about banking. Um, basically, I was the first customer for all of the, the major crypto banks in the US. Like I was like kind of like wow. Coinbase was one of the only companies at the time, one of the only regulated companies at the time. And so spent a lot of effort uh, trying to kind of establish and then maintain access to the fiat banking system. And, and I think one reason that this is hard is I think the average consumer thinks about if they want to go open up a bank, uh, you account, you just walk into a bank branch or you could probably do it in an app today. No problem. You know, you fill out a few questions, you're good to go. Even with a company, like you can go get, you know, account with Mercury or something like that. You don't even have to talk to anyone. But if you want a bank account that is actually processing payments back and forth, that requires like kind of a special onboarding process. And so you actually are almost reverse selling to the bank. Like you're trying to convince the bank um, why you should accept us as a customer and take our money. Is that is uh, considered a merchant account in that? Instance? Essentially, yeah. It's yeah, like a okay. wholesale yeah. banking account. You have direct access to the, the core fiat payment rails, whether that's ACH in the US, wires, or, or card payments is a completely different set of network. So I managed that and then, and then ultimately ended up managing the entire consumer business for, for a period of time. So think of like Coinbase.com mobile app. I was the first GM of, of that business. Um, not good morning, but like a general. Name. Um, <laughs> Just for you Web3 people out there. <laughs> yeah. So, so spent five years at Coinbase. Um, kind of the first few years, things were pretty uh, sideways. There wasn't much growth. And then 2017, we, we had like a crazy year where we 100x'd like a ton of metrics, like went from 10 million in revenue to a billion dollars in revenue. Wow. Like company really grew up, like ballooned in number of employees. We hired a bunch of executives. And then kind of over the next couple of years, like, I was basically in, in senior management, but it's still kind of middle management where it's like I had a much smaller scope of role and like, I, you know, still interesting. But I think that the the initial growth of Coinbase was where I learned the most. And so I think once the company was in a relatively stable place, we had hired out a full executive team like Emily Choi. Um, you know, I, I interviewed her. She's now the COO at, at Coinbase. Um, I felt like it was kind of like my time to leave. So left in 2019, took a year and a half off. COVID extended that a little bit, uh, spent a ton of time traveling, reading, and got to a place where I was bored, which I thought was a good thing to then figure out what I wanted to do next. And then just so happened to reconnect with a, an ex-Coinbase colleague of mine, Varun Srinivasan, who had run a large engineering teams at, at Coinbase, similar kind of like started early and then and grew up within the organization. And then we just started batting ideas around. Like, it was like, okay, should we think about doing something here or there? And one idea that I had been really excited about for a while, uh, for almost a decade, is the idea of RSS, which is this kind of old school, boring, um, permissionless protocol, which by the way, this podcast is going to be distributed via RSS, right? So if you're getting this via Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Google, like that, the, the underlying plumbing that's like pushing the podcast out is RSS. Uh, so it's still very much in use today. But from a consumer use case, it's, it's basically fallen off. Google had this product called Google Reader, and they shut it down in 2013. And there's really nothing that's been nearly as mainstream because basically what people did is they just shifted to Twitter or these kind of like feed-based mobile apps, uh, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, whatever. So uh, I had this idea that for a while, and it's inspired by a Paul Graham essay from 2009, 
that Twitter is this weird company that is a protocol that somehow, instead of being kind of this neutral thing, like most protocols, ended up within a company. And I, I kind of always had this idea of like, well, what could you do with RSS, which is an actual kind of permissionless protocol? How could you improve it enough that it could actually start to be competitive with Twitter? And so Varun and I started to explore this idea. The original name for the idea was RSS Plus, which two and a half years later is now Farcaster, which if, if you think of like Farcaster at its core is about, I put a message out on the internet and now people who want to see that message are going to get that message delivered to them in real time. And so happy to talk a little bit more about, about that. But for the last two and a half years, I've been working on Farcaster. Yeah, I want to I want to get more into that because I know one of the things that I was thinking about as I was preparing for the interview was how to visualize the Farcaster stack. Um, but before we get into that, I want to talk about how you've kind of identified at your time at Coinbase that, uh, and one of my former guests used this, that you're more of a person that likes to play with kittens, not cats. <laughs> that you typically, some people are built more for the fast paced, do a lot of everything environment that is presented in startups. Uh, and then some people prefer to be in uh, a fully scaled organization where everything's operationalized and you're building processes and making it repeatable and all that kind of stuff. Um, is that kind of like the place you found yourself in when you kind of hit that like hyper growth mode, if you will, in the Coinbase? Yeah, I, I, I think... I can play in both worlds and I, I think I did okay as like, you know, an exec within the the bigger organization of Coinbase. But my my passion and my heart lies in just building new things. And I think to your point, it, it's it's a kind of like archetype of you you're either into that or or you kind of like the bigger scale. And so the idea that I could go back to working on a small team, uh, you know, with a co-founder like Varun is just that that that, that seems way more enticing. Um one of the actual things we're doing with our, so our, our company is Warpcast, um, whereas Farcaster is the protocol, the analogies I always like to make, email to Gmail, Ethereum to MetaMask, Farcaster the protocol to Warpcast. But Warpcast is the company. So we're kind of like building the initial version of the protocol, but also building our own app on top of it. Um, we're going to keep the Warpcast team really small. So it's like, I think the magic, like Jeff Bezos is this concept of two piece of teams um, and and just this this like, Keeping a team really small where you don't actually have to have a layer of management is like to me the Pareto optimal way of like going and building something. Because right now we have roughly 10 people. Like Vern and I can kind of manage the the uh, the different people who are working on stuff, but it's really like a one-to-one -one relationship. It's like one person is working on the feature end to end. Um, and then kind of like paired with myself or Varun. And and that I just feel is like super energizing. I'm like, I'm I'm really excited to, to show up to work every day because there's no overhead or, or like if we have one meeting a week, it's like the team meeting and that's it. And so this like being able to actually be as close to the metal as possible uh, is just like the, the amount of energy that I get being able to do that compared to sitting in eight hours of Zoom calls every day, managing well, effectively, which is like <laughs> HR. It, it, it's just, it's a completely different experience. And at least right now that like, that, that's where I wanna be spending my time. And so it's been really fun that for the last two and a half years, like basically just wake up every day and think about like, okay, what's the next thing for, for the protocol and what's the next thing for the product? I love that. So you've got kind of this, like, you're always building mentality. And uh, I imagine that includes uh, providing a, a bunch of autonomy for the people that work for you to empower them to go make their own decisions uh, so that they are not having to schedule a weekly one-on-one -on -one with you to go over each little thing they're doing. Yeah, and it's actually it's it's a reflection of I really enjoy autonomy and work. Like the the magic of being early at a startup it doesn't not just Coinbase, but any company that goes through hyper growth is 
if you're early, you generally have like, you have to work on the hardest problems and then you have a ton of autonomy and being able to figure it out. Whereas naturally as a company gets a lot bigger, you just have more coordination costs. And so the autonomy decreases because you actually spend a lot more time building consensus and, and getting people aligned. Right. And so you like the classic example is like you have the meeting, right? Where in theory that that's where you do the alignment, but then you have the pre-wire and the pre-meeting before the meeting. And then like, as the organization gets bigger, it's like you have the pre-meeting before the pre-meeting, like it just <laughs> becomes this, this completely different game. Right. And I actually think one thing that's interesting is like, if you look at early startup employees, how they kind of scale within a company that grows really fast, not everyone does, in, including myself, because they don't actually have the same skill set of if you start to bring in a professional management team, they understand the game that is the coordination of a big company and execs and managing personalities and all that other kind of stuff. Whereas the early stage startup employee is used to just being like, okay, we have this problem. How do we fix it? Like, yeah. and it's like, when can we fix it? Next, <laughs> next problem. Like, is, at an early stage, all you're doing is you're moving from one problem to the next problem without a loss of enthusiasm. I think I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing someone else's quote, but like that, that's effectively early stage startups. And then big stage startups that already kind of have an established business, it's it's a kind of about like, okay, how do you coordinate within this new kind of meta diplomatic political game, you know, whatever. It's a Rorschach test. You, you can view that as like politics are terrible versus like, no, this is actually just a skill set that you need to do when you're managing a large organization of people. Yeah. Well, there's an aspect of sales and politics, right? And like that you have to be able to sell yourself. And I think the people that have friction with it kind of treat it as an unnecessary step. Right. Um, but in reality, if you are able to sell your idea, sell yourself and, and do all that, you can establish yourself in these big organizations and start to move up if that's your goal. Um, I think the difference is, at least in my experience, is when I've been at larger organizations that eventually like you want to do something greater and like that can start as a side project in the organization and whether or not that gets adoption can depend on your ability to play that politics game, uh, whether or not it's practical that's when the frustration comes. But um, yeah. Yeah. yeah sure. I, I think just to simplify, like generally what, what happens at an early stage startup is you're doing external sales. And then at a late stage startup or big company, it's actually a lot of internal sales in addition to your external sales. But I think um, Peter Thiel nails this in zero to one. And I highly recommend it. Everyone, if they haven't read it, go read it. Or I need to reread it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's worth reading. Or you can Blake Masters, who I guess now is a little bit of a different character, but he was the original one to take the notes. Um, and he, he has the the chapter on sales and marketing and and Peter brings up a line, which I now kind of, you know, parrot is the field of dreams line. If you build it, they will come. That's a fallacy, right? And so it's like every company, every idea that you, you kind of all these successful companies, there is some version of sales, right? And if it's a consumer product that like you can't actually do one-to-one -one sales for, that's called marketing, right? And so it's like, actually, it's, it's like you're trying to like mass market, consumer psychology, how can you actually pitch something that really resonates with people to bring them in? Mm -hmm. And if it's enterprise or, or something that's a little bit more narrow, then it's a hand-to-hand -hand combat of, of sales. And so like the the most underrated skill in Silicon Valley is sales. And 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 I think for engineers like who I think typically are more systems thinkers, deterministic, sales sounds really frustrating because it, it's extremely messy because you're dealing with real people who are extremely complex, they're irrational, or can be rational, depends on the day. Right. And it's, it, it's. I, I think the most useful thing is if you think about games, whether it's a board game or a video game, there's a concept of the meta and the strategy that you need to figure out how to do it. And I think if you reshift sales as a category, whatever you're trying to do, whether it's internal or external, and you just think of it as like a game, 
it actually starts to become a little bit more systems thinking and a little bit more deterministic and, and actually can start to give energy. But it, going back to the point is if you're ultimately having to sell humans, humans are, it's draining, right? Like talking to another person. And so, you know, maybe you're naturally a little bit more introverted. I'm actually extremely introverted. Um, but, you know, I play an extrovert on TV. The, uh, <laughs> the, the, the thing is, is though, it's like it, it requires some level of extroversion to go and actually play this game. And, and so that, that's where I think sales gets this huge um, kind of like misconception within Silicon Valley. Although, you know, experienced people get this and, and Peter Thiel explaining it uh, is important. But especially as we talk about Web3 and crypto, it's like the least sales oriented tech category that I've ever been a part of because people kind of have this fallacy of like, oh, well, if I just build this beautiful blockchain, everyone will just naturally adopt it because the technology is better, right? And you, if you actually look at a lot of the successful companies, projects, whatever, in terms of tractions, total number of sales, they're actually really good at sales, right? Like the one of the, the memes that exists is like Polygon, which I think has done an amazing job with all these partnerships. Why? Because they've actually done the, done the sales, right? Not, <laughs> not because the, necessarily the technology is better or something like that. And so I think... Um, that's one piece of advice I always give to, to entrepreneurs, like especially when I'm angel investing, is you have to will the thing into existence through sheer force of, force of personality and sales. Like the likelihood that you just like build this beautiful product and then everyone just kind of uh, agrees that we should all use this and it just takes off and viral is, is just like it's, it's like fake thinking. And actually, in most cases, I actually think if you, you peel back the onion behind most apps or, or kind of like these overnight success stories, there was some amazing sales or marketing at the beginning that they really nailed and they hit that seam. And yeah, then they got this kind of like really nice, uh, you know, tailwind on, on their growth. But but it really, really comes down to is like, can you actually figure out how to sell those initial people or market to those initial people? Wow, there's so much I need to unpack there. Um, I want to start with one. How do you take your own advice at Warpcast uh, in, in terms of what you just said? Well, I onboarded the first 400 users to Farcaster via a Zoom call. So basically something equivalent to this. I mean, obviously this is a podcast, but yeah. uh, hop on. Yeah. I would screen share. I would give like a five-minute overview presentation of just trying to explain because sometimes it's a little difficult if, if you're kind of using this app that we're trying to make feel similar to Web2 and like really easy user experience. You're not realizing that there's a lot of stuff under the hood that's, that's actually interesting from a protocol and decentralization standpoint, that's it. No consumer actually really cares about that. They, they just mm -hmm. care. It's like Steve Jobs designs how it works. It's like the app is the only thing that matters. Yeah. And so then I spent uh, the rest of the call going through onboarding with people. And so it's it's really humbling to go through 400 onboardings where when you initially ship the thing, there's a whole bunch of kind of like polish that you haven't even figured out what to go polish. It's like, oh, that word is confusing. Or like this screen, which is intuitive to you because you spent hours working on it, is actually not intuitive to another person. And so going through those first 400 people, I think we really were able to kind of understand like, how do you actually do onboarding in a way that is is seamless and, and kind of good user experience? The other thing that's humbling is of those 400 people, I would imagine, not, not imagine, I know, about 350 of them where these are, these are friends, right? Like and yeah. they're not 400 friends, but it's like one degree of separation. Yeah. 350 of them just didn't come back. Right. And <laughs> oh, so it's man. like the only thing I got out of that was about 50 people, <laughs> some who would use the app daily, very, very few. And then some people weekly and monthly. But I think that is like, it's, it's, it's a, to borrow Paul Graham line, do things that don't scale. Like, yeah. yes, you're yeah. never going to get to millions, if not billions of people on a social network doing hand to hand combat of, of uh, onboarding. 
but you do get a really good sense for kind of like the pain points in your product early on. And if out of those 400, you do get a couple of, you know, tens of users who are actually going to continue using the product, that's better than being in a place where you're the only user. And so to kind of like think about orders of magnitude, any new product, like especially a consumer product, you can be your first user. Mm-hmm. In theory, you can go find 10 people, but actually to get 10 people to consistently use the app, you probably need to try to go onboard a couple hundred people. And then to go from 10 to 100, you probably now need to start shifting the strategy, which in, in my case, I shifted over to this kind of gimmicky DM me if you want an invite. So no, like, I, I think, <laughs> yeah, yeah but, but here's the thing. So the average person is like, oh, that's, that's never going to scale, right? So I already did something that didn't want to scale is the Zoom calls. Then I said DM me on Twitter, which, you know, RIP my inbox. Um, but what was interesting about it is there's a little bit of friction and proof of work. And uh, Twitter actually has this really interesting thing. And I, and I started to follow more people on Twitter within crypto Twitter is I can see the mutuals and you could quickly see people who, oh, interesting. So it's like 80 people I'm following also follow this person. I don't even know who this person is, but that seems kind of interesting. And so could start to filter a little bit of like, okay, in a world where I'm doing a little bit more top of funnel marketing rather than sales, how can I continue to grow the network with some amount of quality? And uh, that, that strategy took probably like, several hundred tweets of me like on a regular basis being like, if you want an invite to Farcaster or it's like whatever the, the thing of the day would be, it's like I, I'd post something about Farcaster or an idea and be like, if you're interested in this, please DM me. And sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't. And, and it's just like the persistence of that over, you know, call it nine months of like, I just would wake up every day and that's what I'm starting my day with is just managing my Twitter DM, DM inbox, right? And so we're finally getting out of that world. Like I'm, I'm doing that a lot less because now we have user-driven invites. And, and so th- we're at 10,000 users now. And, and I think so for uh, me just to think about it, it's like, okay, how do we get from 10,000 to 100,000? That's actually an unsolved problem for us. And so we're actually in the process of figuring it out right now. We're going to try a bunch of things and hopefully I can come back a year from now and tell you it's like, this is the thing that we did from the 10,000 to 100,000 that still is effectively sales and marketing. It's just, you have to shift your tactic when, when you're doing a new order of magnitude. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I uh, having done a little bit of research for the episode, uh, realized that, you know, you are laser focused on the kind of core Web3 audience, right? Um, you're not trying to onboard new people to Web3 as quickly as you're trying to provide people in Web3 a platform or a client or an app, however you want to phrase it, uh, to go and communicate with other people who are interested in the space. Do you see that kind of shifting from 10 to 100,000? I know it's a little early, but... I don't think so. To 100,000, I think we can still be in, quote, crypto Twitter world. And so people yeah. who, who, like our, our target audience, even up to 100,000 and, and maybe beyond that, um, they haven't met a mask already. Like use that as a, a simple proxy, right? And, and so you can kind of look at some of this stuff like ENS is over a million unique addresses. Yeah, there's probably some dupes there. But even if you just say, okay, uh, on average, everyone has two, then then it's, it's still 500,000 potential people who, who are sophisticated enough to go get an ENS. So I think orders of magnitude, 100,000, we're, we're well within the realm of like someone who's, who is what I would call crypto savvy, right? So we started the 10,000, I think, are like the most, you know, kind of bleeding edge. These people live and breathe crypto, whereas that next 90,000 people are people who are curious enough, especially in, in, in kind of maybe the, the, the mania of 2021, where they kind of wanted to play around with an ENS or NFTs or things like that. So that's what, that's what we'll be focused on. Are you guys going, I mean, I, is there any ideas around like partnerships to kind of grow like with specific like Web3 or crypto communities? Um, I think it's an area we'll experiment with. I think the challenge there is 
okay, so I have a Discord. Let's say I have a really engaged Discord of, I'm just gonna make this up, 5,000 people, 10,000 people. Um, I go and say, hey, do you, do you want to onboard that entire Discord to Farcast? So first of all, a bunch of those people, if, if like, you know, you think of this as actually a relatively small uh, community of very active people, they're already on Farcast. Okay, so now you onboard the rest. Um, are those people now going to be using Farcast or are they going to continue to use the Discord that they're, they've already invested time in, right? And, yes. and this is actually a problem we have had to confront and solve at least each, each amount of scale that we've reached is that there's this kind of framework I love to, to think about when building a consumer product is stated versus revealed preference. And the, the best example of this is, is Henry Ford's famous quote, if I had asked my customers what they want, they would want a faster horse. Yeah. And so I think the kind of way to think about it is people actually don't really know what they want sometimes. Like in, in certain instances, yes. Like if it's like a very like well-defined thing, but with new technology and new products, uh, you, it's your job to actually come up with the product and then be able to actually solve it with the consumer by maybe having an insight into like what their problem is or what the revealed preference of, of kind of like what they, they would use or uh, do. Um, but stated versus revealed preference is also something where people like to tell you what they think you want to hear. Like it's just natural human behavior. <laughs> so you go onboard your 400 people in, in crypto having worked in crypto for almost a decade. And you're like, hey, check this out. You've, you've said you're really interested in decentralized social. Like it's imperative that we get there. Like you're really pro Web3 and crypto. That's the stated preference. The reveal preference of all these folks is they've got tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of Twitter followers that they worked really hard to build that audience. Why would they go spend any amount of time on a new protocol where they might have 100 followers, right? Outside of like pure ideological alignment, which yeah. there are a few people in the world like that, but actually very few. The revealed preference is what people, people have a limited amount of time. So what they're going to do is they're going to use where they have their biggest audience. And, until, by the way, at some point they might lose that audience because they, they get banned from Twitter. And then, then they're riled up of like, wait, I wish I had actually been building this kind of in a protocol where maybe I can control it. And so where I think what we've we found is the revealed preference of users is to find the people who don't have as much invested in another platform, whether that's Twitter or YouTube or, or Discord, and actually kind of target them. And when they start to build an audience on Farcaster where they now have more followers or, or kind of an audience size that's bigger on Farcaster than they have on a legacy platform, they've converted to becoming like a full Farcaster maxi in the sense that this is now more valuable to them than that other platform. And, and my friend Eugene Way has an amazing essay. It's very long, wow. but it's worth reading. Status as a service. Yeah, it's a great. One. That actually specifically calls this point out, where you can almost think of it as, um, and it's like a rough analogy that is, it's like immigration, right? So it's like if you're if you're in the, uh, the upper class or the nobility of the the original country, you probably don't have as much incentive to leave. Whereas if you're kind of like at the the bottom of the the hierarchy in terms of status or economics or whatever. You're, you're more inclined to say, hey, maybe I'll move to the US, like that land of opportunity, right? Like the new thing. And when you get there, um, you start out like everybody else, but as you build status in that new area, then, you know, you, 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 you actually, it's, it's a much more dynamic environment where now you can actually become one of the larger creators on this platform. And so Eugene talks about TikTok in the sense that each new big social media platform mints a new set of stars. And so I, I think we're in the early stages of that with Farcaster, but 
we have you know several people who have you know five seven thousand followers now on Farcaster, having just a result of having been there early and active, that is much bigger than their Twitter following. And so this becomes their default place to do distribution, which if, if there's some semblance of quality there can actually maybe kickstart a little bit of a flywheel where now other people are like, oh, these people are actually kind of interesting. I'm going to actually start using Forecaster because it's differentiated content and, and a graph than what I would get on Twitter. And, and so that, that, that's, I think, where it's, it's taken us a while to get there with a bunch of mistakes in between, but like figuring out like the reveal preferences, find the people that traditional social media is underserved but potentially are diamonds in the rough and then actually get them to start using Farcaster and, and, and highlight that content and, and, and stuff like that. And so that's effectively what we've done over the last two and a half years. And if I think about like what we need to do over the next year, it, it's basically scale that significantly. And, and, and so there will be probably a new set of tactics that we need to think about. So you've got kind of the, I guess, the stated versus revealed preference of the uh, creators, right? The people that want to build a following, but just as important to those people are the people that want to be the voyeurs that engage in additional conversations that help add to those follower counts. Because let's be real, like creators don't always follow each other, right? Like they're trying to build their own fiefdom, if you will. Um, what have you, have you done any exploration around that side or is that just so secondary just to get the good quality content onto Farcaster and content creators? Um, what, what is that? Have so we've actually been pretty explicit. We have very limited set of algos um, mm -hmm. in terms of like, if you just think of it as like, we have a following feed, which is kind of reverse chronological, but then we have something called highlights. So if you're familiar with TikTok or even or Twitter, like the for you is effectively the algo and then following is is more traditional of who you're following. And then we have a recommended set of users. And what we've done early on is we haven't done machine learning. It's actually just been heuristic based in terms of like what algo rules. And we explicitly try to uh, reward people who are actively having conversations. So here, here's an example. I I post really good tweets or memes or whatever. I show up on Farcaster. I just start automatically cross-posting, right? Because I'm just like, okay, this is quality content. I'm going to go post it here. So two things happen. One, uh, I use Farcaster, but I also see it on Twitter. I'm like, okay, this, like, what, like why, why, what, what is differentiated about this? And there's all this other stuff on Twitter. So like, I should just use it on Twitter. So that actively hurts the value of the network. The second thing is, if you are posting... And people are actually in good faith, especially because the network is smaller, are, are wanting to engage and then you don't reply. That hurts the value of the network. And so what we've really tried to emphasize is, so if you post and it gets a bunch of likes, but you're not really engaging or there's not a lot of conversation, the algo does not value that as much as a post that gets a lot of back and forth conversation. Right. And, and, and so it's not overly complicated in terms of the algo. You can kind of think about it. But like the whole, the whole point is we would rather highlight things that generate like back and forth on the network, real conversation, then then kind of this broadcast and then try to hope for likes. Whereas Twitter doesn't do that. Twitter Twitter is, and I'm overly simplifying this, but like if you just think of their algo and their incentives, up until Elon, it was time spent because time spent means you see more ads and if you see more ads, they make more money. So time spent, if you just let the machine learning algorithm at scale go after that, it's naturally going to, to surface uh, threads. So you have all these like, and you know, this, this, it's like, yeah. And it's like, you could have condensed this into like three tweets or one tweet. You turn it into 10 because now if I click through and I like kind of go through and I'm like, okay, get to your point, get to your point, get to your point. I am spending more time on that set of tweets, which if the algo's goal is to increase time, because that increases revenue, then that's what you get. And so if you kind of think about Twitter, um, 
it is very, very broadcast and, and like people actually don't engage. Like if you just look at like big crypto Twitter accounts, they don't really respond to their comments. And, and there's a whole bunch of other reasons like spam and like, you know, all this other kind of crap that Twitter hasn't figured out. But at a core, very few people are actually having conversations. They are broadcasting to their audience. And um, the other thing that Twitter has, which we haven't really implemented because we want to be careful about this, is what quote tweets do is if just think about the conversation you'd be having. So let's say you and I are having a, an exchange on Twitter and someone who doesn't like us comes in and quote tweets. Okay. That would be the equivalent of us, us having a conversation at a party, that person walking up and then screaming out to the rest of the party. Hey, everyone, look how idiotic these people <laughs> over here are like by taking one tweet out of context, which if you think about it, like most people are not going to click through to that tweet. They're just going to see the, yeah. the like thing out of context with the dunk. And then yeah. like the dunk is, you know, ratio, like think of all these terms that we have from Twitter yeah. and, and it, it's, it's a function of it's a product, it's, it's, it's become a product and, and a network where it's very much about broadcasting to your tribe and your team. Mm -hmm. And so I think that with what we have, granted, we're way smaller. We don't have a bunch of these issues. You can't sign up just like out of the box. So Twitter, Twitter is actually at a like relatively for a centralized network of a permissionless state. So want to give them intellectual honesty, like credit there. But the, the thing that we have an ability to do is because we don't have this ad-driven model is maybe we can actually shift the incentives and, and the core primitives and behavior on the network to be more oriented towards conversations by our choices and how we do an algo or, or kind of incentives on the network. And, and I think we're still trying to figure that out, that maybe it doesn't ever get as big as Twitter in, in you know, maybe the, the next couple of years, but the quality of conversation is so much higher that that quality starts to attract other people to actually want to be the, the audience, right? Because quality is super hard to fake. And I think the, the thing that we're going to actually find out is the GPT revolution as it applies to Twitter threads, I think we're going to just, it's going to get so bad. Like in the same way that SEO got really is. bad. With, <laughs> right. But, but, but like, I think like the, the kind of threader GPT thing, it's like, here's the story of the day. GPT is now going to be able to, you know, take all this information in and do a 20 long thread and pull the, just, just, just take any threader that you want. It's like, I, I'm pretty sure an LLM is going to be able to do that. And so then it's just, Twitter's going to be overrun with it. I would imagine they're going to have to change the algo because it'll actually, people will start to, to use the app less. And what people will be craving is authentic conversations. And, and, and it's like, oh, this is like a one-to-one -one exchange between two people that, yeah, maybe it's LLM supported to like make it a little wittier. But the idea is like a one-to-one -one back and forth between two, two public people on a platform is, is like, that's actually what, it makes Twitter interesting. Uh, obviously, it tends to be more negative, but like that—that—that's the the opportunity I think for us in the near term with Barcaster. I love that. I mean, I have—I don't know, have you uh, have you been following uh, Tim Urban's new book that just came out at all? I haven't had a chance to read it. I know he was uh, working on it, and then he apparently had their kid a little early, so like that was not originally part of the plan. But yeah, I, I, tell me about the book. Yeah, no, I've uh, I, I've started the book. Uh, I have listened to five and a half hours of podcast of him talking about the book um, with Lex Friedman and, and Patrick O'Shaughnessy over on Invest Like the Best. Um, and it, it just the, the, the core concept is that there is low rung thinking, which is what we're kind of in as a society right now, which are these echo chambers and a lot of 
the algorithm on Twitter is feeding these echo chambers, right? Um, and then there is high rung thinking, which is uh, what he calls an idea lab, um, which means that we are having open, honest discourse about ideas and nobody is demonizing you for having a difference of opinion. When I think of what you are talking about prioritizing for high quality conversations, I think you are promoting idea labs, right? Whereas when I spend a lot of my time on Twitter and I scroll through and I see six different people posting a thread about the greatest prompts and chat GPT. And let me tell you about the, you know, secrets and ins and outs of the SVB bank failure. Um, you know, it's, it begins to get repetitive, right? And like, you don't really get to have good conversations because like you said, there's not a lot of incentive for the people with big followings to continue a conversation. It's more of an incentive to just broadcast it. Now that doesn't mean that they're going to get demonized to the sense where what he calls a social justice fundamentalism, which is the woke culture. But I mean, I just, there, to be able to do something like that, uh, to have more of a dinner party conversation than a, a podcast, even though obviously I'm a big fan of podcasts, right? Like we are broadcasting this. I'm not in the, in the chat talking to people and asking them, what do you think of what Dan just said? Right. But like, if you can do stuff like that, that's very high quality content. And I feel like from what you've just said, that's what you're trying to do, right? Is create that space for people. And, and right now people that are associated with crypto Twitter and web three to have those high quality conversations. And you've got that, by the way, you've got all the big names, in my opinion, already on there having the conversation. So I just, I find that intriguing. And I think it's just totally on point with what he calls a self-help book for society. Right. Um, this is what we need more of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's an interesting concept. I should I should check out the book. I think a couple things. So one, um, I actually have a contrarian take on filter bubbles. I actually think that that they're completely okay if you can actually generate the the idea lab content for tribe X or tribe Y in public. Because then you can actually exchange those ideas, even if you're not necessarily having a direct conversation, because that tends to be less civil. So imagine um, just a hypothetical scenario in, in a couple of years here where there are two major clients on, on top of Farcaster or, or a decentralized social protocol, right? Like just, just assume that we're all in kind of like one global commons for social protocol. And you have team yellow and team green, and they each have very different politics, okay? The, when you use team yellow's client, you, you don't see anything from team green. Like, so if someone from team green at the protocol level responds with a quote dunk or whatever, and it's like, look at this idiot or like, blah, 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 like tech bro like this, or like, you know, like blah, blah, woke person or like whatever, like just all of that vitriol, you just don't see it. So what, what ends up happening is team yellow, remember all this is public by the way, is having their conversation and stuff here and Team Green can go read that content if they want, maybe a different client or whatever, and then vice versa. And so you're going to have those like low rung thinking people who just all they want to do is actually fight online. Like it, it is just entertainment. Like that's actually what they're there for. Um, but you're going to have the higher rung people be able to actually at least engage in those ideas. And, and this does happen on Twitter today. It just gets drowned out. And so a really basic example of this is Noah Smith. Um, he has a, a no opinion on, on Substack. Like he, he kind of used to be within, I think, academia and or like traditional media. Now he's independent on Substack. And I think he's doing from a financial standpoint, probably better than he's ever done uh, traditionally in any of that stuff. So now he has a direct line to his audience of people. I personally don't agree with a lot of what Noah says. I think he's generally a little bit more left than I am on the spectrum. But what's fascinating about Noah is 
he he in good faith intellectually engages with basically every topic that he that he writes and i find myself whenever i'm reading noah having to question my own set of beliefs because he's presenting an illogical and coherent argument right and so so i think what what ends up happening is if you can allow people to actually just uh express those ideas and and engage in in kind of whatever way they want and somehow you can highlight the the kind of higher rung thinking even if we disagree you're you're actually getting to an intellectual environment that's i think a lot more idealized and and the beauty of it is you just you just can drown out all the low rung thinking and that can actually be a decision at the client level right so you can imagine you have the yellow client and the green client and then someone chooses i don't know like the the purple client over here and the purple client just basically says we're actually going to try to get the people from you know using ai like super negative ad hominem attacks or whatever we're going to we're just going to drown those people out or just like the you know they're using like swear words or whatever it's just like let's get rid of those and, and then it's just like you're you're compiling what's actually happening at the protocol level between the people who are arguing good faith from team yellow and good faith from from team green and now you're exposed outside of these filter bubbles you, if you choose the purple client, are exposed to a rich intellectual tapestry of all these different ideas. And, and we actually get to a much more idealized thing. But, but the key thing here is the people who build that purple client, they're free, they're free to go build that, right? You cannot do that on Twitter today. Twitter does not allow you to build third-party clients. And even if you go back to the regime that existed prior where you could build a third-party client like TweetBot or TweetDeck, uh, or in a TweetDeck zone, uh, TweetBot or Twitterific you still didn't have access to the full fire hose. And so it's not like you could actually build some algorithmic feed that's trying to surface the best of Twitter. The best you could get is like who you were following. Um, and so I, I think in a world where you assume that the kind of like substrate for what's actually happening in this kind of like public open discourse is a protocol, you are going to have a, a kind of marketplace of clients that can cater to different types of people. And I don't think you can actually go change human nature. So there are going to be people who want the blood sport that is Twitter and like team yellow versus team green. And that's okay. But there are going to be a whole bunch of people who probably are interested in team purple because they're like, hey, this is actually great. Like I get exposed to the smartest people on the internet for free. And, and so that, that that's like the idealized version of what we're trying to go build. Now, getting from 10,000 people in a crypto centric network to kind of this like global public commons that's a lot of work between here and there. And, and I mean, that's, that's what we're trying to figure out. Yeah, no, that, that's a good way of putting it. It's, it's almost like the, and maybe there is an element of transparency that you add to your clients. So people understand what you're filtering for, or maybe they just got to figure it out on their own as they interact with your client. But that level of transparency and publicity and what you are doing is actually allowing you to filter for the low rung thinking because everybody that is, in the top notch of this are the best thinkers in the space that they just happen to lean one way. And I think that's what gets lost a lot is that there are a lot of really smart liberals, capital L liberals. There are a lot of really smart conservatives, right? But the way that you would portray them on Twitter right now, at least the way I think about it is like, oh, well, if they believe something I don't believe, then, you know, they must be bad. Right. But like really like they're really smart people and they have a reason. They have very clear reasoning like you're talking about that they believe in those things. And this is allowing people to make that decision for themselves. And I love that you combined it in the purple because obviously for Farcaster is purple. Um, but then they meet in the middle and they've got like this neutral ground where it's like I actually just want to understand the whole playing field, I guess. 
how like the other the other problem that's inherent in this is like tip the reason that you know people are so worried about how polarized things are right now and how everything is politicized is because the loudest voices in the room are typically the ones that get the most following and get the most coverage get the most broadcast like reach right um the the moderates which is where i would consider myself right like we haven't like we aren't typically allowed loud people and that's what's kind of allowing these other like very polarizing sides to proliferate is there a way that you can allow the moderates to speak to these two polarized groups in a productive way i i don't know i i like is that possible if you build the purple client i guess is the question so my my like a from a historical basis i think polarization has always existed and like there's like this this kind of um, nostalgia for some era that didn't exist. Like it was like people always disagree. Like politics have always existed, right? You want disagreement and, to an and, extent. And so it's like what, what we have now is we're just online and like things move at the speed of the internet. And so, and, and there's always a recency bias. Everyone always thinks that they're living in like the the, the pivotal moment in history. It's just like, that's how humans work, right? Um, so like there is no version where like we live in the society where the extremes don't exist. And here's the, the wrinkle with the internet is the extremes traditionally did not have any means for distribution outside of within their own weird extreme on, on both sides, right? Or, or right. you know, if you think it's even multi-party on, on any side. Yeah. What the current state of social media does because it's centralized at scale, ad-driven. So when you have an ad-driven at scale model, Time spent is the thing you care about. What is upstream of that? It's it's mm. it's it's clickbait. Why? Because yeah. it's the most entertaining. It is it is genetically engineered. Like if you think of like Twitter as constant A/B testing. Show me the incentives and I'll show you the man. Right. And so <laughs> so so like let's say you have this like really and I, and I actually the reason I use the yellow green because I think it's just like as soon as you say red blue like people are like they immediately shift into team mode right <laughs> yeah. and so like you know it's like red and blue actually create purple but I like yeah, using yellow and green because you have no association <laughs> yeah. for what that means at least in the U.S. right some other countries where that means one thing yeah. but if if you basically have like an interesting thinker in team yellow and then you have the high rung people and the low rung people what will happen is that idea or thing that they're talking about that they, they, in good faith, are like, how, how could we potentially solve it? Here are some, the way that, that it's like a game of telephone, it filters down to the low rung, and then they use the kernel and build something around it that just gets the most likely to click or the inflammatory of the thing that within that side, which by the way, they're doing it for their side, for the team to like get engagement. But they, what they actually want is the quote tweet from the other side to increase the distribution and the beef. Right. Like there's a there's a concept called the Streisand effect where it's just like you like any effectively like any additional publicity. Like if you try to uh, tamp down something, it actually will increase publicity. And there's the, the traditional line. It's like any publicity is good publicity. It's just like the fact that like you can say something inflammatory over here that you get a bunch of likes on your team drives the other team so crazy that they then turn it into an issue. It's like the account um, lives of TikTok, like the, the whole reason that that account is so popular is not because it, there's a whole bunch of people who believe what it's saying. Yes, there, there are people like that. It's because the other side, it drives them crazy, <laughs> right? And so, so you, you, your audience is actually 100% of the extreme people on both sides. 
Yeah. And then the moderate people are in the middle kind of just being like, what the hell? It's like, <laughs> it's just like a constant fight between th these two people on, on both sides. And so that's where I think, again, it, it goes back to if you have that ability to have a marketplace of clients and, and, and like you can opt into using a client that's like, I just don't want to see either side of these extremes. Like I literally want to see like photos of astronomy or like, you know, and, and Reddit is actually a good example of this. Think of like subreddits where they're like yeah. more topical based. Yeah. I just like literally want to live in a client where I just never see like the two ad hominem sides of like, you know, and fa deep fake videos and all this other kind of like whatever literally the current thing on the internet that day is and team yellow and team green are fighting over. Mm -hmm. I just like, I want to see like, what's the latest ML paper? And I don't actually want to see anything about L ML alignment because that's effectively a political issue. Just yep. show me the like, uh, I don't even have to say Arcvix or, or whatever the, the like paper that came out. That's yeah. what I want to see. Yeah. And by the way, if you use a feed reader like today, like an RSS feed reader, it's like pretty esoteric and niche. That's basically what you get. Like you can literally never have to worry about seeing some like crazy other thing outside of one of the blogs that you're choosing to follow decides to cover it. And if that blog gets too like, you're just like, oh, man, like all they're doing is talking about this like political stuff that I'm not that interested in. You just unsubscribe, boop, and you never see it again. Boom. And, and so it's like Daring Fireball, great example. I've been reading that blog uh, for for 15 years. And he he has a political bent, right? Like he he's he's a liberal and like he hates Republican stuff and he, he loves Democrat stuff and like that that's just who he is. I, I go through those posts. I actually read them because I, I kind of, he's like, I think he's a smart person. So I'm curious of like how, how he's approaching that, but I'm not there for that. I'm, I'm there for the Apple content. If he went hundred percent politics, I would unsubscribe. Then I'm done. Like he, he, he's free to do that. He has his own website and I'll just continue to read the other 300 blogs that I have in my feed that are talking about topics that I'm just a little bit more interested in reading. But so, so, so I think like what we can do is if we can get it to a protocol based social network, you as the adult, assuming other people go build these clients and, and make these parameter choices and, and maybe there'll be open source clients, which then you can tune just like a feed reader to whatever you want. You can opt into the, the version of the, the public square that you want. And if you don't want a whole bunch of other stuff and you're just like, I don't want this like blood sport entertainment, um, you don't have to follow it. Right. And, and, and like, here, here's a really basic example from traditional media. You ever watch the nightly news in the local market? Mm, not really. Okay. Well, not, not, not today, but did you like growing up maybe? Yes, or, we're growing, okay, up. growing up. It was, it was an event. Is, you sat down at dinner and you might've turned it on. Right, yeah. exactly. It's just like that pre-internet, like that's how yeah. my parents would watch it every night. And whenever I was old enough to be able to stay up, I, I'd watch it. It is the most formulaic, same thing every single night where it's, if there is a murder or a thing that is scary, that is the lead story. Yeah. That is just like the way it works. Right. And it's like, why are people doing it? Cause it's kind of like, that sounds like entertainment, like in the sense that it's like it gives you something to talk about the water cooler the next day. And like so people have been doing this forever. But like, I don't think anyone serious uh, would have ever said watching the nightly news, the regional nightly news in, in wherever you are compared to reading a, a couple of newspapers. Let's say you read the, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, which which have different points of view, like wh which of those two things is going to, you know, give you like a better perspective Holistic, on what's yeah, happening yeah. happening on the world. Watching the nightly news or, or reading those two things. And, and, and here's the thing. If you're reading the New York Times or you're reading the Wall Street Journal or The Economist, that's a filter bubble. That is an editorialized algorithm that shows up, whether it's daily or once a week, but you opt into it. You, you could say, hey, you know what? I'm finding the Wall Street Journal is too radical on this or the New York Times is too radical on that. And maybe I'll, I'll subscribe to the Financial Times, which is an international perspective, if, if that's what you believe in. 
But like the whole point is that there is a marketplace of algorithms in, in, in news, it, at least traditionally. But I think as we've moved more towards Twitter, now now the algorithm that is centralized there is, is actually dictates effectively what the current thing is with the front page. And so moving back to a model where you as an adult get to make the decisions on what your, your diet looks like, mm -hmm. because there are other opportunities for clients that actually respect that ability and say, oh, the consumer says they don't want to see this. We're going to do a really good job preventing you from seeing this because maybe they're monetized via subscription. They don't have to worry about the amount of time spent you have in, in ads and things like that. So that, that that's like the world I want to get to is is actually it's just move it closer to web one where it's like everything was a website and it's mm -hmm. like you pick the websites you if you like Drudge Report or you like um to post or yeah so. exactly or daily costs like there's a rich tapestry of different like you know levels of political extremism or, or what are talking points memos another one like I think that whole early internet culture of like you could actually kind of pick like the the intellectual bent that you wanted. Um, I, I think we're just missing that today because so much of it is reduced to a single app's algorithmic decisions, which are focused on time spent, which inevitably turn into the blood sport entertainment. Um, whereas Talking Points Memo might have taken something that they saw on Breitbart or mm -hmm. Drudge and they do this big dunk takedown, but they don't get any additional distribution with like the quote tweets and retweets and like people dunking back and forth. It's like you had to actually go over there. And so that, that that like speed of of the kind of like fight is, mm -hmm. is is the latency like significantly increases, which I think requires a little bit more nuance and thought than like the 140 character. Or I guess now technically it's unlimited on Twitter, but 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 part of it is like show me the incentives. Like I'll show you the outcome, and and also just like the culture. And I think that that's where Twitter is today. And so what I'm hoping with Farcaster is because of the multi-client ecosystem that we hope to, to propagate you're going to have dozens of different cultures and you can actually pick yeah. into the one. And I think that it's so necessary to have multiple yeah. cultures. I was actually talking about that uh, this morning with a friend over coffee and you need all of these people available. I think what you're saying is that now we're giving the, the power, the intent uh, to engage back to you as an individual. Um, and, and you can choose what you want to do just as right. easy as you can subscribe or unsubscribe to a blog. Consumer choice. I think it's like, you know, people want to frame decentralized social as a censorship thing. Average person doesn't care about that. Uh, maybe a creator, publisher, developer, like you can make the arguments that they're more sensitive to that, given that like they've built an audience or an app and they can have that rug pulled. The consumer, what they, they like markets where they have more choice because that means competition. And it means people are building apps that try to appeal to their unique set of needs, right? And so if you have a single app they can just optimize for wherever they want because the only way to get access to that Twitter graph is, is through the official Twitter app. But if you now have a marketplace of those apps, maybe none of them are actually as big as a traditional centralized social media, but in aggregate, that marketplace solves for uh, the kind of like unique needs of a, a wider variety of people. Just think about if the market for cars, okay, the only car you could buy is a Tesla. Do you think Teslas would be worse, worse. Or, or better quality? In <laughs> you got no other choice. <laughs> switching costs. Right. There are and no so, switching so costs. If you, don't, you, don't, you can't switch. <laughs> here, here you go. Cars, cars today. I Let's say I'm, I'm like super pro, like, you know, we need to reduce fossil fuel dependence. And I want to have an electric car. Now I have this conundrum because I don't also yeah. like Elon because I think, you know, I disagree with his politics or whatever. You have the freedom to either choose to use a Tesla, which I think by most people's estimate is the best electric car in the market, 
Or you can say, you know what? I am just going to weigh the quality of my car relative to my dislike of Elon. And I'm going to go buy, I don't know, a Nissan or like whatever, whatever equivalent uh, alternative. But you as the consumer have the choice to be able to do that. Like that is actually important. And you can vote with like, I never want to give that guy another dollar. Great. You're, you're free to do that. That actually is infinitely, I think, more impactful from a, like actually steering the way things work in society is if you can vote with your, your dollars and the market can actually say, hey, you know what? Tesla's actually starting to lose market share despite if you just like ignored the logo and just like evaluated the car because Elon's antics are so infuriating to the group of people that are interested in buying electric cars. I can guarantee you that will actually make Elon modulate a little bit more. That is like way more likely to actually get him to change how he's behaving yeah. than you dunking on him on Twitter. So, 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 so like, I, I think like in a world where now all of a sudden, like imagine Twitter actually had to be built on a protocol. Like it's just like there's that hypothetical. Overnight, all of the people who, who dislike Elon would be switching to a different client. Whereas now they have to go to Mastodon or, you know, Farcaster or whatever, but like Farcaster is not permission to sign up. So most of them went to Mastodon. And you've already seen this huge correction in the total number of people using Mastodon because the reality is what they actually care about, the reveal preference is that distribution. And so they're kind of sheepishly still using Twitter. And you can always see this. The people who make the loudest noise about going to Mastodon, just go to their likes on Twitter. They're still on Twitter because you can see how recent their likes are. And so maybe they're not as publicly vocal, but the same thing is they're probably yeah. spending a ton of time watching the app, even if they're hate watching it. And so getting to a world where you actually have this, this like kind of public comments on a protocol and someone you really dislike takes over the biggest client that you're using, you can just seamlessly move to another client. And then boom, you can continue to talk to your people. You don't have all this work that you have to go rebuild. Uh, maybe there's a set of features with that new client that you actually really enjoy. Like, so, so that's, the, that's the vision of what we're trying to get to. And, and it's just like, okay, well, we have 10,000 people in the network today. Like, how do we actually well, get I there? I love that. I mean, and uh, part of that inherent in, in what you were just explaining with, with the client, with, with Elon, with Tesla's is something that, has really been highlighted in you know the web3 crypto twitter space is the ability to buy things based on the way they identify who you are right um you've got this kind of identity layer that has never been really super possible before but you've just explained it that you can actually approach your car buying with that same level of identity is like i actually went and got you know the hyundai uh, electric vehicle before i got the tesla because I hate Elon, right? Uh, not because it's a better car, because they just started making electric cars, but because of that, that's that was like, it's a really good analogy. I love that. Right, and so so the idea is like consumer choice creates mo uh, moderate behavior, because if you go to extreme, yeah, you'll have your set of extreme customers over here, but assuming there's an equivalent someone can actually switch over to, they may not want to go choose that, right? And 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 like take another dumb example. Let's say my pillow built the best possible pillow. Like you just like objectively everyone, like if you did blind taste test or, you know, the pillow test, they would do that. I can guarantee you that like if that, if that was the scenario of the world, people would still not buy that pillow because they don't like the, the like outspokenness yeah. of the politics of that one individual. Right. But you, the, the pillow market is like an extremely low barrier to entry, right? So it's like anyone can go build, you can build like, I mean, literally purple is a company that like builds mattresses and pillows, but like the whole, the whole point here is when you don't have these monopolistic lock-in effects, you get a very dynamic 
consumer choice oriented market that if people want to optimize for having the most pillows sold, I can promise you they're never going to want to do anything. <laughs> they're just going to want to be like, Fucking all we care pillows. about is pillows. <laughs> like, you know, put your head on it and you're going to be able to sleep. And Right. But, but like, that's the whole point. But, but when you, when you start to get to these lock-in scenarios, you get to be king. Like you can do whatever you want. And, and so, you know, if, if you, the, the irony of this whole situation is the group of people that don't like Elon with Twitter, right? We're the same group of people that, you know, when they kick Trump off, we're like, well, go build your own social network, like too bad. And so it's like intellectual, like just like not thinking through like any system, you want the set of incentives so that if your worst enemy flips over to controlling the thing that you thought was like a given under your team, they can't abuse it. And so the way to do that is through open protocols that are credibly neutralized, credibly neutral and decentralized and permissionless. And so I, I think we're finally at a point in society where I think people, uh, maybe not the extremes, but like the people who are actually kind of the high rung thinking on, on different sides of the political spectrum can all agree on generally. It's like, yeah, it would actually be kind of nice to have a centralized or a decentralized, credibly neutral platform that no one entity can control in the same way that we have with cars or newspapers and or the whatever if that changes. Uh, you know, market you can think yeah. of. That's beautiful. Well, we went on an right. awesome tangent for the entire episode. That was awesome, Dan. Um, I do have to ask you my two traditional closing questions, and I'll have to bring you on again uh, if you're open to it, um, because I think there's just a lot of interesting things happening in your space, and you're kind of at the forefront. You have a front row seat to all this. So um, uh, anyways, the, the two traditional closing questions that I have are, how do you describe Web3? Permissionless innovation and the ability to, to kind of have true ownership over things that are important to you. And it's not quite like own your data because I actually don't think that that matters as much. But the idea that if you have an audience, that relationship is directly between you and the audience and, and no one can kind of go and muck with that. So that to me, that, that's ownership. Gotcha. And then the, the last one's forward looking. Um, where do you see yourself and this industry, Web3, crypto, in the next six to 12 months? And where do you see yourself in the industry five to 10 years from now? Six to 12 months, I think we're gonna be in a pretty choppy environment for at least six months or a year, or maybe longer. And so I think what we've really been focused on with Farcaster is just, we know what we wanna accomplish and, and try to keep focused and, and making progress and listening to feedback from the developers in the ecosystem and, and the people using the product today. So. That, that's how I think of it is like we for, we're fortunate that we have plenty of funding so we can actually kind of be a little bit blinders heads down. I think in the longer term, you know, five, 10 years from now, I'm extremely bullish on some protocol breaking through and and I hope it, hope it is Farcaster, but you never know. And so what, what I do think is five to 10 years from now, th the core protocols that we're using for kind of social media, I think will be X number of more clicks decentralized. I don't think centralized social media companies are going away. They have an insane scale and user experience. And I think the average user really likes using a lot of those products, right? It's like average person likes using Instagram and TikTok. That, that's just the reality. Now, there are a whole bunch of other moving pieces, like whether it's political or kind of, um, you know, th these trends. But I do think um, if the technology and, and kind of the early users can kind of bootstrap an ecosystem where there is an alternative, you're going to start to pick off uh, the types of creators who are saying, hey, I actually do want to be kind of creating an insurance policy where I have a following on maybe something like YouTube, but maybe a decentralized version of YouTube. Because now I, if, if I lose access to that platform, I still have a way over here. 
And I think that the permissionless innovation that will start to happen in the kind of decentralized social networking protocols where anyone can go build a client, which doesn't exist on, on Twitter today, doesn't exist on Instagram or YouTube. I think that is the the thing that we're like, if you think of it as like a little bit of a kindling of a fire, that if we can really stoke and, and get going, then the new innovation that will start to come out of the kind of decentralized ecosystem of apps may actually be on on par, if not better, from just like a, a solving a consumer problem that they didn't even know had. And, 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 and like people actually just want to use because they're delightful new products. And so we're really, really early there because we're just still trying to get the ecosystem booted up. And, and it's this kind of like, how do you will a flywheel into existence? But I think over the five to 10 year timeframe, uh, if you just take it as a whole, as a category, I, I really do believe that the, the permissionless innovation will way out compete whatever the, the centralized social networks, even with their ability to go and try to copy. Yeah, yeah, I like that. It's like almost it, the more that we build, the easier it will be to onboard people in a way, right? Just because there'll be so many options that like they're, why wouldn't you almost, right? Like yeah. if you have the option to communicate with and partake in things that you value highly, like here's your option to go to go do that eventually if there's enough clients out there that are doing the right thing. So cool, man. I appreciate you coming on, Dan. This was an awesome conversation. I have to say like super enlightening, uh, loved your analogies. Uh, I learned a ton and I hope my audience does too. And uh, yeah, thanks, man. Awesome. The last thing I wanna give is anyone who made it through this podcast, if you send me a DM on Twitter, uh, it's the easiest place for a cold DM right now. Yeah. Um, DWR on Twitter. And if you send me a cold DM and you mention that you listen to the Web3 with me podcast and use the word Arizona in that message, I'll prioritize giving you an invite to Farcaster. Oh, sweet, man. Thanks. Man, get some listeners out of that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Thanks, dude. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to Web3 with me. If you enjoyed the show and want to help us grow, please hit the subscribe button on YouTube or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter at Zach underscore French underscore.